Welcome back to Limitless Lives, stories of power and potential. I'm your host, Nilesh Patel. And today we have a remarkable guest who has worked and helped individuals to break free from limitations and unleash their true potential. Joining us is Piers Thurston, an internationally renowned coach, mentor, and speaker who has impacted countless lives around the world. Piers has become a trusted guide for individuals seeking to break free from the shackles of self-doubt and step into their full potential. Throughout our conversation today, we will delve into the internal battles that hold us back and practical strategies for overcoming limiting beliefs. Piers will share his wisdom and insights that will inspire and empower you to embark on your own journey towards unlocking your true potential. So, get ready for an episode filled with revelations and actionable steps. Piers, welcome to the show. Nilesh, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. So thank you. Thank you for that lovely intro. No worries. That's all you. It's your story. So thanks for being here. And it's been a long time coming. For our listeners at home, I've actually had the pleasure of partnering with Piers many years ago. I attended one of his leadership coaching programs and I was just really fascinated by some of his insights and his teaching philosophy. So hopefully we'll delve into a little bit of that as well. So our listeners can maybe apply some of that learning too. Yes. I, mean, I think that was actually quite, it's so many years ago, I've kind of forgotten how many Nilesh, but it's probably over 10, right? Since we first met, probably even maybe like 15. It really has been about that time frame, Piers. You've definitely left a mark on me and it's really helped me in my evolution as well. So I'm really grateful for you and I really hope our listeners can take away some of your valued insights. Brilliant. Well, I'm really glad to be here. And if I can be of any help to anyone listening today, then that's great. So let's get straight into it. For our listeners, can you share a little bit about where you started on this journey and what's led you to this point? Yeah, so I'll give the nutshell. I've always, since a kid, been fascinated by people, the human condition. And then I did actually read law at university, so I didn't do psychology or anything like that. But again, I was fascinated by people. I went into marketing for a little bit because I love people and how they buy brands and things. But then in about 2000, so uh, 23 years ago, this thing called coaching popped up, sort of life coaching as it was known then. And I thought, wow, I really want to do that. So I quit my job. I was in brand innovation, consultancy and marketing and sort of retrained as a coach. And as I say, it was a couple of decades ago and I loved it. I absolutely love the difference you could make to someone by just having a conversation. And then I went around and sort of collected a load of approaches, tools, techniques, strategies, and positive psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, hypnosis, EMDR, systems thinking, appreciative inquiry, symbolic modeling. The list goes on and on and on. And I started working with organizations as well as individuals. So more than just life coaching, doing executive coaching, music coaching. And I collected all sorts of things over the sort of 10 years. And then in about 2008, 2009, I had some of my own sort of realizations and insights into the nature of the mind. And it kind of turned everything on its head, really, about how we can access, unlock and leverage the best from ourselves. Uh, and I took it away from a sort of 
psychological tools, strategies, and techniques and approach to allowing people to see some really fundamental, quite profound realizations about the nature of the human mind and what we are, which led to the practical things in their life and work changing. Um, and that's where um, what I now call quality of mind was born, um, which is a, what I would describe as before psychology approach to all of this, which I'll, of course we'll get into. And I've really spent the last sort of 10, 15 years developing and evolving that. Uh, and it's quite a different way of doing what I was doing 15, 20 years ago. So that's, that's my nutshell. Uh, and I suppose, you know, just to say, as you said in the intro, I now work with teams, individuals, leaders all around the world, uh, pointing them to see some wonderful things about their own nature that we hadn't really spotted and seeing how that turns up practically every day in work and life. Uh, that's such a fascinating journey of where you started, what you thought about as you're going through that, and what you learned along the way. Now your approach specifically focuses on inquiry into the nature of mind, reality, and what we are. And then you explore that in terms of how this turns up in our psychology and day-to-day -day life. Can you share a little bit more about that from an approach perspective? Yes. And, and it might be a little difficult for people to get a very quick gist, but I'll try and do it in two or three minutes if I can. So whereas before I was helping people come up with new behaviors of how they want to be in the world or to understand more about their personality or their character or look at how can I come up with some strategies to be more effective or to see through my thinking and modify my thinking. It was all within the world of psychology. And now, as you mentioned, I point people to have some realizations about the very nature of what we are, really, how consciousness, the mind, thought all works. And that then leads to all, all the wonderful things that people are looking for in life. And where we start with that is really quite different to where I used to start. So we start by asking people to inquire. And that word is quite particular. There's a particular way of inquiring, which is to, to look at the human experience completely fresh. Imagine you didn't know anything about the mind, didn't have any belief system or memory about, or oh, I think it works like this, or it should work like that. Almost imagine you're like an, sort of an alien popped into this moment. And what can you literally see right now about the nature of what we are. And when you do that, i.e. you turn off all your conceptual beliefs and narratives about the nature of the mind, I'm not even talking about, you know, who we think we are as a person, but as the nature of the mind, you start to see some really fascinating things about how the mind works. And that then opens us up to realize that we've sort of innocently be misunderstanding some very fundamental things about what we are. We're generally being told, conditioned uh, from a young child, a young infant baby, that we are a, let's call it separate self. So there's Piers and Nilesh and the, the sort of the world starts from your perception of it. You're a separate individuated person and you've got thoughts and you've got behaviors and you need to access those and it's all coming through you. So there's kind of a lot of emphasis put on the self as being the epicenter 
Science backs that up with materialism and the brain being the epicenter. Now, through direct inquiry, we get to see, actually, it's not that. It's not that. All this stuff is appearing in what we would call the mind, but it's not coming, it's not sourced by this separate me. It's sourced by this wonderfulness that is the universe or consciousness or whatever you want to call it. And, and nature is living us. And when we start to see that, we realize that when we're looking at the world from the self, it's quite limited. It's got limitation. Whereas when we're looking at it more from what's available beyond that, there's far more creativity, resilience, love, peace, available, potential available. But we accidentally think we start at the self and then if we're lucky, we can have an experience of this wider consciousness rather than know we are wider consciousness and we can track down into the self. So that's just one implication of us really seeing it from the inquiry perspective. Why do you think individuals then often find themselves battling with their own minds? And how does this kind of internal conflict limit their potential? Yes, great question. So the reason we struggle sometimes with our, you know, our mental health or, or not being in our mojo, it really comes down to a sort of an innocent misunderstanding of our case of mistaken identity. So we're told we are this self and that's what you've got. And then this self goes into the world trying to seek or protect certain attributes like feeling validated or feeling happy or feeling resourceful or feeling creative or feeling loved. And it doesn't see that that's in our very innate nature. So it goes and seeks them and we tether our well-being and validity to things that are fundamentally unstable, either material things like, like money and objects and they can come and go, but also to things like relationships where they can come and go. Or even we, we tether it to things like our mindset or our state of mind, which is what, to be honest, I used to do with things like NLP, right? I used to tether our well-being to I've got positive thoughts. But when we realize there's something more foundational than that that never changes, we can see it's in our innate nature to have peace, potential performance. So our struggle, our, our suffering, mild or major, all comes from a misunderstanding of what we are and what we're made of essentially. And that's where it all comes from. But we don't see that until we kind of wake up to that. And it's so invisible and innocent until we see it. We kind of recognize it at a very deep level, but we've got a lot of noise in the way. Um, and society nowadays is deifies the self, right? It deifies thinking. So we're all, we're kind of addicted to this faculty of thought that we have, which is a beautiful thing for creating in the world, but it's being used far too much. So that there's a misunderstanding that we're separate and it's all innocent and invisible to us until we wake up to it. And then we see, ah, there's something much bigger at play. And then what's wonderful is that when we recognize that, it's actually quite familiar and reassuring to fall back into that because it's where two-year-olds are at anyway. Um, it's in our conditioning, really, is a short answer. Our conditioning is accidentally pointing us in the wrong way. That's so fascinating. I'm hearing so many things from that. And one of the things that was really interesting was that you talked about identity and whether we truly know who we are within, right? 
And based on that, our lack then goes to seek validation from external sources. And then it's all mixed up, then go into this whole snowball effect of, am I enough? Am I worthy of this opportunity? Can I do it? And so forth. The more sort of complicated ways we do that, but if you don't understand is that sometimes we go, oh yeah, okay. So I'm not being myself at the moment. I'm not being my best self. You know, you hear about that. You've got to find my best self. Who really am I? And when we go on that search, we tend to still look within the psychological self for the best version of the psychological self. Like, oh, there's this version appears, there's this version appears, there's this version appears. And what we're pointing to with inquiry and quality of mind is, no, back further than that. We're not looking for your best avatar. We're looking to see what you are before the avatar. And people find that a little confusing to start with. They're like, well, there's nothing there. But actually, when you start to look, yes, there is. It's, it's what we are before the self's come into psychological form, not trying to find a better psychological version of ourselves. I love that analogy about the avatars, especially in this world we live in today where we have to put on these personas, whether it's at work, home, relationship, and sometimes that they all get convoluted or mixed up and you kind of lose yourself in all of those. It's really fascinating that you're delving into that and helping people in that way. Why do you think individuals often find themselves battling with their own minds? And how do we as individuals identify them? Well, it's a conditioning thing. Societally, we're conditioned to think we're a separate self and that's what we're told. You know, what did you tell your kids when they got to one or two years old? You didn't, that you didn't tell them they're part of an individuated form of a wider consciousness. You told them that's you, that's who you are. So conditioning is, is really the, the answer to why we get caught up. However, the other thing you could point to is the appearance of duality. Now, and that might sound a fancy word, but it does appear to us if we, if you look at the human experience that we are separate because you would say, well, I end at the end of my fingers or the top of my head. You know, the, the body mind is, is what I am. I'm not, I'm not part of something greater. You know, look, I'm separate. I walk towards a tree. The tree's over there and I'm here and I walk towards a tree and little me walks towards the tree. So the, through perception, there's an appearance that we are separate and we're not part of something greater. And then we can have the experience of being very separate and not part of things. We can also have the experience of being part of something collectively wonderful, but we can have both. Now, just because we have the appearance of it doesn't mean we are it. It's, it's an illusion, right, that there's a separate world out there. Now, that doesn't mean the, the, the outside world doesn't exist. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we're all brains in a vat. You know, I am saying that the idea of separation is an illusion. An illusion is just a, a way of saying something appears what it isn't. When we know that, we see it. But when we're caught up in it, we don't see it. So appearances can be deceptive just through the perceptual hardware that we've got. Tell me if I'm going too deep here. But evolution has enabled us to survive to procreate basically that's what evolution does but it didn't evolve for us to see reality as it is and actually this even scientific work from a guy called donald hoffman backing this up so we were taught that evolution you know was all about 
those that saw reality as it was survived and those that didn't died off, basically. Actually, it's the opposite. The, the people that saw reality as it was or the species that saw reality as it was didn't, didn't survive. So what we see in the world of people and things is actually a little bit like, if I can use the metaphor, of your desktop on your computer. When you see those icons, the one's Word document, one's PowerPoint, your recycling bin, one's your you know, thing to Netflix, you know they're not literally what they are. They are representative of, and they're useful guides. So you take them, you know they're important to navigate the computer, but you would never take them literally. And that's the same as the outside world for us. So the, the way the world looks to us or even our body looks to us is, a, is an icon. It's not really what it is, but that appearances, we take it at face value. Now we've learned to go through a few appearances. So you could, it did look like the world ended at the end of the horizon. So people thought the world was flat and we kind of know that's not true. It did look like the sun went round us as so a sunrise, but we've kind of seen through that appearance. So we have to also see through the appearance that there's an outside world and people are separate to us. It's just an appearance that we take quite literally. And if we can see through that, then again, it's going to help us not get so caught up. So there's sort of two reasons, our conditioning and the, our perceptual hardware and how things appear through that perceptual hardware that we have. I think the analogy of the desktop is a brilliant one. And I'll continue using that analogy a little bit in terms of an example. So when I think about in the work context, we wake up first thing in the morning and we open up our laptop and there's an abundance of emails. Without even realizing it, we are thinking things like, this is going to be a heck of a day. How am I going to get through this? We automatically start having or creating limitations of ourselves as soon as something appears. Now, based on what you've just said, how can we apply these approaches in our day-to-day -day life? Yeah, and here's a shift for people to get curious about. And I, I will try and make this practical as well as kind of too pure, but I think there's a big difference in application and implication. So for the, for the work I do, which is quite transformative, that people, once people see this, it kind of with them for life, you, you don't really apply it, you see the implications, right? Because application, again, is the self trying to do it. But instead, how it turns up practically, because this is not just a profound thing, this is really eminently, hugely practical and useful, is you start to see that limitation. Right. So just like you're saying with the emails coming in and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to get through today. Today's going to be a bad day. You know, if you spot that that's just a thought, the thought doesn't kind of impinge you too much. Now, we're saying take that even further and realize that absolutely everything is what I would call real, but never true. Everything, everything comes up in, you know, thought, perception and sensation. And once you see that at an implication level, limitation just dissolve. You don't have to get rid of limiting beliefs and limitations. To give you the contrast, when I was big into my neuro-linguistic programming and coaching work, to conventional coaching work, I would give people lots of tools and techniques to try and break through their limitations, you know, psychological strategies. And now I'd be pointing people to see the nature of a limitation. There's something appearing that limits you and it could come with a feeling maybe as well. Now, when you understand the nature of that, it's no longer limiting. It's like if you understand the nature of television, it's 
less scary. Now, little kiddies that get very scared with a TV show, when they're scared, we point to them to understand the nature of the TV show. We go, oh, look, it's just on the screen. Don't worry about it. The same with have a bad dream in the middle of the night. We'll go and explain the nature of dreams rather than go, oh, that, that monster's looking scary, isn't it, right? Now, we have to do the same thing with our waking reality to see that when a limitation turns up, it's not real and true as it might appear. And when we see through that, the limitation doesn't need work. It just dissolves. So th that's the shift that we start to see, see the true nature of it. And, uh, and when you recognize and realize at an embodied level, the true nature of it, it kind of dissolves. I heard you say, when you understand the nature of something, it becomes less limiting. And I think that's, that's a beautiful affirmation almost, or a reminder as these sorts of feelings or emotions or these thoughts start entering our mind, it's important to understand why this is happening. Well, and well, here's a distinction. There's a big distinction here. Us just knowing that once you realize the limitation of it, it disappears, it doesn't actually move the needle because that could just be a mantra or a nice thing to say to yourself. It's, it needs to be realized. And what I mean by realized is you have to see that at the most fundamental level rather than just know it and then apply it as a tool. So what I wouldn't want people listening to this podcast to go, oh, right. So what I need to do is tell myself those thoughts are just real and never true. And then they'll pop and they dissolve because they won't. Because you just knowing that and saying that to yourself won't make a lot of difference. It actually might even frustrate you because they won't disappear. But you realizing something about the nature of this human condition and thought consciousness, that will make a difference. So th th this is where I think slightly, in, well, completely innocently and slightly unhelpfully, the personal professional development world, of which I was a big component, points people to try to use tools and techniques to break through their thinking. But it's still coming from the premise that you're a separate self and that limitation is kind of real and you need to do something about it. Now, we're saying go back further than that. Go back to before the psychological understanding of that. Don't try and fix psychology through psychology. That's like trying to get dry in the shower when you've still got the water on. It doesn't work that well. So there is something to see at a realized level before you start to try and apply this. You've helped not only individuals, but you've also worked with many different organizations. How do you engage leaders in this dialogue to help them reach their own true potential and also unlock the potential within their teams? It's about the inquiry. It's about the direct inquiry, because otherwise it's just a bunch of tools and techniques that you're trying to apply. This is more transformational than this. So the first thing I would do after, of course, you've understood where someone's at and, and what the presenting issues are, which as a coach and a, you know, I'd always listen to and understand when the real work starts, the first thing you do is before we get into their world of how you're going to solve this, what you can do with this, how are going to do this? How do I get my team to be more like this? Which is all the questions they've got buzzing around, of course, understandably is go, right, we're going to press pause on all of that. We're just going to inquire into the nature of the human experience. And we're going to do that in a very fresh way, probably something they've never done before. And, it, and it's not a conventional way of doing it. And it's slightly odd to start with. But once people have done it a few times, they're like, oh, 
And then they will start to have the realizations for themselves about what we're pointing to. And then from that, the implications come out. There is a requirement just to press pause on everything you know, just to go out of fixed mode to the issue to start with, go into curious kind of exploring, inquiring mode about the nature of the mind. And then once you've done that, we come then back into the presenting business issue or leadership challenge they've got. And then what's so wonderful and fascinating is they'll then look at that thing that they were telling you a few days ago was a big issue. And they'll look at it and they'll start to see their own clarity about it. It will probably have shrunk in, in size. They'll see, oh, that could happen. Oh, that's that. And it starts to, to dissolve and change and fresh thinking emerges. So we don't tackle the problem straight on. I'll give you a shortcut version of this. So if, if there's a, someone I'm coaching or someone wants some coaching and, and they're a leader and they say, I'm struggling to get my sales team to perform to the targets that we need to, uh, you know, get to by year. In the old days, I would have been going, okay, well, tell me more about those targets. What are you trying to do? What do you think is the behavioral issue here or the problem in the culture? You know, that's where we tackle it. We dive straight into the content of that sentence. Now where I'll start is who's the I in that? So you said, I'm struggling to, you know, I would start at the very first word of the sentence and people are like what do you mean who's the i in that what a ridiculous question to ask me you know <laughs> like go well can we just explore that just for 10 minutes before we dive into solving the the challenge and even in that 10 minutes of inquiry people are like wow i didn't realize that what was there to explore even in that very one word the i because that i that's the case of mistaken identity that I mentioned earlier, that we're all in. And when we can see some more about that I, and this, this may be making no sense, listeners, in which case, well, we'll either elaborate more or send you more links on other podcasts, you can explore this. But that's, that's where we're looking at with before psychology. It looks like there's nothing there, but wow, it's transformative once people see it. And what do you think the implications are for personal relationships or intimate relationships it's huge um whether that's in parenting romantic relationships it's absolutely huge for many levels one because you you start to understand that uh, there's separate realities going on so whereas we are all one infinite field you know it's we not me right? we are all the same field of consciousness we individuate into whirlpools. So if you, you take water and whirlpools and each whirlpool in each moment has its own way of seeing the world. So it's impossible for someone else to have the same thinking as you in any moment, right? So you and I right now, you know, I don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. And sometimes we go into life assuming someone else should think like us, which is just crazy when you, when you think, well, why, why do we do that? But we do. We're like, well, they don't think like me. Help. You know, either we judge them or judge ourselves. So we start to see, oh, wow, of course someone else is going to be in a separate reality because that's just the nature of the system. But we also see that even though they are separate realities in their, in their own individuated whirlpool, we are also part of the same system. So there's a deeper level of oneness, connection, whatever word you want to use. And, and we can sense and feel that 
when we get really present with someone, you can, and it doesn't matter who they are or what they are or how old they are or where they live or their views on politics or religion or football. There is that underlying sense that we are all one. There's the sense of recognition, which you feel quite deeply when you fall in love with someone. You feel on a minor level when you just say hi to someone as you're walking down the street. When you're hanging out with your friends, having a great time, you can feel it. At work, you can feel it. There's something beneath our thinking that, that we can sense we are all one. You can feel it with people who aren't in the same room as you or, the same, or even alive anymore, right? So there's the individuation and separate realities, and we can be curious about that and not judge people for having separate thinking. And we can fall back into this, yes, we are all the same thing, and there's a beautiful collective nature of what we are. And then you start to see how the self plays out in its relationships with people, which are all based on its own, generally, <laughs> on our own insecurities and how we project that into the world and make it look like it's coming from somewhere else. And that is fascinating to explore because you start to see that relationships are a wonderful way of seeing your own conditioning turning up. Whereas previously we would have thought, oh, that's them you start to see, oh, wow, this is my conditioning turning up in that person. Because remember, we're not really in a relationship with someone else. If anything, we're in a relationship with our thinking about someone else. So you can't directly be in a relationship with someone else because we've got this faculty of thought kind of in the way. In a very, we're very present and neutral and open, but most of us have got a lot of thinking about people, especially the people we know and love the most which makes the world a very interesting place to live in. So true. It really does make it an interesting place to live in. So Piers, based on what you've just said, if someone was to ask you, what are five things I could start, stop or continue doing to help me on this journey? What would they be? Yeah. Oh, good questions. I would say we generally are innocently addicted to thinking we don't realize how much we think the world rather than feel it sense it and, and we take our thinking quite seriously now we need to be more like a two or three year old and recognize you know the the because they don't take their thinking that seriously. So thought is very useful for some things. If you're trying to work out you know, a problem at work or, or design a new spreadsheet, then by all means think. But we have a lot of thinking about ourselves and we get quite, we layer up that thinking and we don't recognize that a lot of that thinking really is, it's not accurate. That the conceptual mind is just making up guesses and generalizations. So we're overthinkers. And I think in society, we've noticed we've been addicted to a few things over the decades, like, you know, smoking and, and eating bad food. We're going to realize now that we're overthinkers. So we need to back off the thinking is point one. Point two would be to start to realize that there is more to us than meets the eye and nature is doing us. So Whereas it might appear, you know, that we make a decision to do X or Y or, you know, I did that and that's coming from the self. No, it isn't. It, it is. We are part of nature. So nature is living us. And once we allow ourselves to see that, it's beautiful because we realize there's an intelligence to that. 
The third one I would say is to get people to get curious about what they think their feelings or sensations are actually telling us. So we've been taught that if you feel rubbish or bad, then there's something going on either in life, you know, circumstances, or you that is wrong and needs fixing. Now, if we can start to see that actually what feelings are telling us, is there an indicator to how caught up we are in the self or the language I would sometimes use is how contracted our aperture is. It tells you about where your mind's at, not that there's anything in the world that needs fixing or changing. There might be things that you want to change in the world, but you need to recognize that the feelings don't come from the world. Feelings don't come from the world and circumstances. They come from the mind. There's no causal power in the external world. And we can then use feelings as kind of like a, a signpost to tell us, to point to us when we're going off track, like a rumble strip in the road. And then the fourth one, I'll say a bit more about feelings because they're, they're quite a big thing, aren't they? Is that we've got quite habituated and conditioned to either distract ourselves from feeling with our devices or with substances or conceptualize them. As in, we think about them, oh, I am angry right now, and yes, I'm very angry, and I'm aware I'm angry, but that's just thinking about them, conceptualizing them rather than feel them, feel them. Now, if we know that feelings are just a signpost for where our minds are and where our aperture's in, we can just feel the feeling, ignore the narrative that the mind has made up, because that's coming from our conditioning, it's not anything useful, and just feel it, just feel it, bring it in feel it and then it just dissolves so not only are we misunderstanding what feelings are telling us we tend to distract ourselves or conceptualize feelings and don't feel them again go back to the two-year-old they are brilliant at feeling stuff and that's why it doesn't last very long and the fifth thing i'll say and this is a bit more kind of what to do next is just to get super curious that maybe innocently invisibly we've misunderstood what the mind is. Maybe the idea that we're all separate things and it's the materialist world and the separate self is how we survive, you know, and it's all down to little us and there's a hard world out there is not right. And if we press pause on that and get curious, it doesn't take long for us to see there's something going on and, and the, what we've been taught as again, innocent and invisibly is not really working. And if you can follow that intuition and start to get curious in the way, well, I would suggest the way that we've been pointing on this podcast through inquiry, you'll soon see that there's a lot of very well-meaning misunderstandings out there about the mind. And when they fall apart and dissolve, you're like, wow, I wish someone had told me this before. That's the most common thing we get on the work I do. Is I wish I'd realized this before. So. I would say number five, press pause, get curious. Now, how, are that, how is that for five things? They're amazing. I was listening to you and I was smiling at the same time thinking, well, these are things that I can really think through and take away and do a little bit of reflection. I loved the fact that you started off with, we're seriously addicted to thinking. I think 
the fact that I said, I think as my starting to that sentence <laughs> is probably a good indication of that. But we're more than meets the eye. It was beautiful. And, you know, getting really curious about our feelings and just making sure that we understand that they're, like you said, they're indicators, they're signposts, they're flags, just giving us a message. What we then do with that is then our, our choice. So that was beautiful, Piers. And I think the distractions in this modern day world of, of our feelings is really important too. We suppress them, we bury them. And I yeah. think that there's some work to be done there. And I think it's, it's definitely something that we should all take away and start thinking about. So that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm aware that I've given in this podcast quite an overview of lots and lots of things. And, and you know, we could probably dive into any one of those five and do a whole podcast on it. So it's been a little bit broad what I've done, but hopefully if people are curious, they, uh, they might resonate with something. And often intellectually, it doesn't always make sense what I'm saying. I find people, but when they, there's a lot of resonance going, oh, there's something in there. So again, we don't want to overthink it. If there is a resonance with some of what we've talked about and what you've been highlighting, Nilesh, then I would say to, say to someone, just follow that curiosity, follow that curiosity. And that often requires just slowing down a little bit uh, to get your thinking out of the way to, to see what we're pointing to. And, and you know, listen to the sentences that we say three or four times and just see what occurs to you rather than rushing to get to the gist which is what we're generally told to do in the world of form is you know quickly get to the gist and move on now this is to be savored and and resonated with doesn't mean it takes a long time but you have to appreciate it with a different level of sort of curiosity i think it's definitely made me think about certain things and getting curious so i really appreciate that piers i just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on you've covered so many things hopefully it's allowed our listeners to start getting curious as well. So once again, thank you so much for being on Limitless Lives. Love to have you back again uh, to delve into some of these topics. Well, thank you. And it's been an absolute pleasure and honor to be on here. And I love the name of what your podcast, Limitless Lives, because it's exactly what it is. So yeah, have fun being curious and uh, hopefully you'll start to see some new things that can be useful for any aspect of life and work. So um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks all, and we'll see you again on the next episode.